0: welcome back to another episode of the Making Grift Show. So for those of you guys that do not know, this is an annual report that is put together by the president with air quotes and the rest of his advisory team. Well, in here, I'll scroll down here to this table of contents if you're looking, broken out into several main, main categories. You know, I think it's interesting that they continue to talk about how digital assets and cryptocurrencies you know, maybe aren't as stable as, or aren't as powerful as, or aren't the answer to really anything that that is has been caused by the Federal Reserve, by the federal government. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see what their takes are on these things, and I think it's interesting to look at this to understand what their narrative is. So I'm just going to pop over here. There's one little, there's one main piece that I want to look at, and it is in the eighth chapter that is all about digital assets. Um, And they've got a, a side note in here that is all about what are the functions of money. That's what this section is titled here. So I just want to read this for you guys. Let's jump into it. In early history, bartering was a common way for people to exchange goods and services. Bartering, however, takes time because individuals need to find another person who is willing to trade one physical good or service for another. A workaround for this was the invention of money. Some of the earliest forms of money appeared in about 1200 BCE. Money's key innovation was to facilitate trade between individuals by using an item that had a common representation of value that was widely agreed upon by members of society. This is, instead of having to take a goat everywhere and hoping to find someone who wanted the goat, money enabled... Individuals to carry something that everyone valued, such as polished beads, which could be exchanged for a wide variety of goods and services. The first money was in the form of things like seashells, beaver pelts, and even large stones. Eventually, money took the form of specie, um, it says, or coins such as gold and silver, which could be produced to a specific standard of weight. While money like coin money, metal money, was decidedly more convenient than carrying around a goat, it was still cumbersome to transport. To get around this, paper money was created, which was substantially easier to transport. To ensure that paper money still had financial value, it was backed by uh, real coin and metal money. That is, the paper money essentially served as a promissory note for coin money sitting in a bank. And it could be freely redeemed. Now, here's where it gets interesting, Griff. I want to see if you can recognize maybe a ginormous piece that's missing in this story. (laughs) This system worked well, but it had a key vulnerability that became a common theme of many crises. Banks could earn higher profits by issuing more paper currency than the amount of gold coin currency they held in their vault. Okay, I do actually agree with that piece. For example, a bank could hold 50 gold coins, but could issue 100 units of paper currency, each giving the holder the right to one gold coin. Then, if all holders of the currency demanded their money back at the same time, the bank would not have enough gold coins to meet the holder's redemptions. Sound familiar? Sound like the current banking crisis? That's exactly what has happened. This dynamic, referred to as a bank run, also has a long history, dating back to as early as the 4th century BCE. Okay, so let's pause here before we move to the next uh, paragraph. Yes, this is absolutely true, right? We, we realized that, uh, you know, let's just say gold was the hardest form of money that we'd found up to this point. And we said, hey, let's use this. But gold has a similar problem to Bitcoin in the scalability aspect. It's difficult to move gold around. Now, Bitcoin, you can move around, but gold was difficult to move around. It's difficult to verify. And if you want to use it on a global basis, man, you can't use it with the internet, right? But the early answer for the scalability of gold was, hey, let's use paper money that represents some standard amounts of gold. And we'll keep the gold in the banks and we'll use this paper money to transact day to day. And that works for a while until trust breaks down and the banks begin, like what they say here, uh, printing more paper money than there is actual specie, whatever that word is, however it's pronounced, the, the real coin money, the real metals. So let's move on here. They skip a huge piece. It says, eventually, institutions and faith in currencies, particularly the U.S. dollar, became strong enough that gold was not needed to assuage investors' concerns about what was backing the currency. Okay, so this is true, partially, but for the majority, it's it's lacking a huge piece. So it says, eventually institutions and faith in currencies, particularly the dollar, became strong enough that coins were not needed to... Massage the investors' concerns about what was backing the currency. This is not what actually happened in history. What actually happened was in the Bretton Woods Agreement, this is right after World War II, all the large economies and, and uh, major economies in the world, they all get together, and everybody decides that the United States dollar is going to get backed to gold, is going to get tied to gold, at $35 per ounce of gold. That's a standard measurement that the, the dollar and gold made. And then everybody else pegged their currencies to the dollar. Ergo, everything is connected to gold, right? The dollar's connected to gold, everything's connected to the dollar. so everything's connected. Well, then in 1971, as people started to realize, man, maybe the United States doesn't have all the gold that they say that they do. I'm going to call their bluff and I'm going to go get my money. I want to say Griff, it was France maybe that even got in their ships and started heading to the United States. And then Nixon comes out famously in 1971 and says, we are going to temporarily suspend the dollar's convertibility to gold. And that is actually what creates the fiat money that that becomes the U.S. dollar. Now, listen to what they say next. This led to the creation and adoption of fiat currency. Now, I think creation is maybe correct. Uh, adoption was kind of forced, right? Because uh, everybody was already using the dollar when it was made fiat. But it says uh, this led to the creation and adoption of fiat currency or currency issued by the government that is not redeemable for you know, some type of physical uh, uh, metal coin or money. Fiat currency's value is largely a function of, one, the currency being the only instrument with which individuals can pay taxes. I think that's pretty dirty, but true. Two, the strength of the government's institutions, such as the legal system and the military. Okay, Uh, I guess maybe you could say that in some way, shape, or form. And three, a shared social trust in the value of the money itself. I can agree with that. Now, I think the big piece here that's missing that they actually don't call out at all is that fiat money wasn't just created. And the government said, hey, let's do this. And everybody said, hey, that's a great idea. Let's do that. That's not the way that it happened, which is how they're kind of saying or implying that it happened here. What actually happened was gold was the real money. Everybody decided that one ounce of gold was going to be worth thirty five dollars and then everybody said well i'm going to peg my currency to the dollar because it's pegged to gold and then that that set, that that connection was severed and now we're all living in a world where we're forced to use fiat currency so again i think it's an important piece to note the language that they use what is the narrative that they are spinning and Are they spinning it in their own favor? I would argue that they maybe are. They're spinning it in their own favor, Nick, because the the whole thing, they just went from seashells bartering to seashells to gold to gold backed by fiat to fiat. And they omitted pretty much every example and reason why everything happened and how all of it happened. So the entire article is just a bunch of shit and they're lying. Let's continue on this document here. It says money as defined in the Uniform Commercial Code, which we did talk about in, I think, maybe not, not this past episode, but the one before where we talked about House Bill 1193. But it says money as defined in the Uniform Commercial Code and certain other specialized sources is a medium of exchange currently authorized or adopted by a domestic or foreign government. In contrast, here the economic functions and common understanding of money are considered. For a type of money to actually be useful in the economic sense, there must be wide agreement about its value, either derived from assets backing it, i.g. the gold standard, or from things like institutions and social trust. Money serves three core functions, as a medium of exchange, as a unit of account, and as a store of value. First, money can serve as a medium of exchange if it can be used widely to trade for goods and services. For example, the U.S. dollar can be used for purchasing anywhere in the country and even in many places abroad. I agree with that. In contrast, for example, while cigarettes are often used inside prisons to trade for goods and services, they cannot be used to purchase groceries or to buy a plane ticket. Okay, fair enough. Second, money can be considered a unit of account if it acts as a benchmark upon which the values of different goods and services can be compared. For example, instead of estimating how many chickens it would take to trade for one cow, a person can instead simply express the value of chickens relative to cows through their respective monetary values. So, if one chicken costs $10 and one cow costs $2,000, then a person can simply use their relative dollar values to conclude that 200 chickens are worth the same as one cow. Finally, store of value. Money can be a store of value if its purchasing power does not fluctuate dramatically over short intervals of time. I would also, I would probably more so argue, argue that money should store value over longer periods of time. So I guess I could say that I partially agree with that. But then it says, for example, the number of apples a $10 bill can buy does not vary much from one day to the next for now. This is one reason why very high levels of inflation, and then it says so called hyperinflation. That's, this is not true. Now, and I'm going to, make the difference here dollars hyperinflating right now but it says it says this is one reason why very high levels of inflation so-called hyperinflation can create uncertainty in the purchasing power of money so it's kind of funny it's trying to say that inflation is hyperinflation and it's trying to discredit or discount the use of the word hyperinflation which again goes to my main point in reading this which is the language they use the narrative that they're pushing and spinning. Uh, in front of your eyes to make you believe a certain thing, right? It says, uh, you know, very high levels of inflation, so-called hyperinflation. It's like, no, hyperinflation is like a real thing. It's defined by 50% or more inflation uh, by the calculation every month. Now, Griff, you and I, and hopefully the listeners know that the CPI metric is not accurate already, Um, but this is funny, right? I mean, it makes you question, what is the narrative? Then it continues here. Sovereign money is money issued by the governing authority of an independent country. Sovereign money can easily satisfy money's functions to serve as a medium of exchange and as a store of value over time. This is because sovereign money is an information insensitive asset. It is unlikely that one side of a transaction is acting based on the private information about the value of sovereign money, The more information-sensitive an asset is, the less likely it is to be a medium of exchange. For example, if there is a high possibility that someone is buying gold to protect themselves against losses from holding another asset, the gold seller may decide that it is better not to exchange gold for that asset. Sovereign money is also a liability of the central bank, meaning that its value is backed by the bank. The U.S. dollar is widely accepted as a medium of exchange, and it is also a store of value. Uh, indeed, roughly half of all international trade is invoiced in dollars. Now, that's an interesting stat. This does not mean that all sovereign currencies have the fe- have the features of money. For example, Zimbabwe's currency lost its role as a store of value in 2007 when its annual inflation rate rose over rose to over 66,000%. In Zimbabwe's case, consumers and firms shifted toward the widespread use of other sovereign currencies, which effectively replaced Zimbabwe's currency. Bank deposits also act as money. Banks offer deposit accounts to their customers, and these deposits are pegged one for one against sovereign currencies. The value of this private form of money is generally supported by a nexus of regulatory and supervisory requirements, such as capital and liquidity requirements designed to protect the customer against a possible bank run. This account-based private money is linked to an individual per- person or entity. In contrast to sovereign currencies, there are limits on account-based money to circulate. For example, if Jeff writes a check to Greta to pay rent, Greta's check from Jeff represents money that belongs to Jeff, i.e. the money that is linked to his deposit account. And she can redeem it in exchange for circulating cash or currency. Although Greta is legally allowed to exchange Jeff's check for gasoline, third-party checks are not widely accepted as a payment method. Hence, in reality, Greta first needs to cash the check and then purchase gasoline. Griff, I think this is kind of an interesting uh, an interesting perspective on what money is. I think that there's a lot of stuff that's right in there. And I think that there's a lot of the, the words and the narrative and the real history that actually happened that has been twisted to make the dollar and the current establishment look better than it actually is. It's all marketing and propaganda. I mean, <clears throat> that's what it is. Hey, if you guys are not watching us right now, we do have video on Spotify and on YouTube. Go check out the YouTube channel. Seems like you guys are liking the YouTube channel maybe a little bit more than the audio. So go go see us on YouTube. Come follow us on Twitter as well. It is at Nick and Griff Show on Twitter. That's also everywhere else that you you could find us um, on all the major podcast platforms, all that stuff. Also, if you are interested in some Satoshi Saturday's gear, just like the shirt that I've got on here, matches this logo that's right above me. Go uh, check out the Satoshi shop. It's down in the description. We got some shirts and some long sleeves, some hoodies. Go check those out. Griff, it's always fun to hop on on a Saturday and chat. We'll see you guys next week. Peace.